morning. We have been uh, praying for the Romaine family because um, Ian was discovered with a, uh, a tumor in his brain stem. Uh, now, for different reasons uh, uh, that are unknown, whether, well, we don't need to go into that, but uh, there, he's regained some strength, and that strength has been able to, he's been able to grasp some things, and uh, been able to take some steps, which is a huge uh, praise that he's been able to do. And they're um, kind of like Frankenstein-type steps, but they're steps all on his own. And so that's a huge praise. Um, so uh, they have been uh, wanting to use this uh, strength uh, for the glory of God, and uh, they have planned a trip to go back to Spain and uh, meet with like the soccer team that he was with and to... Um, kind of talk to some of the neighbors and some of the people that they know, and in that process be able to share the gospel. Uh, Lord willing, they'll be flying out the 17th of January and be coming back, I think, the first week of February. So that's an uh, amazing opportunity to be praying about, that God would use uh, their testimony and their life for his honor and glory and uh, to see people saved. We are in Ephesians chapter Five, Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 3 through 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 3 through 5. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, this is the Word of the Lord. But immorality, or any impurity, or greed must not be named among you as it is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving, thank, giving of thanks. For this you know that uh, with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word. I pray that your spirit would illumine our minds. Father, what Paul writes here is, is kind of hard. And we might find ourselves that we uh, uh, fall outside of those who worship you. And if that's the case, I pray that your spirit would convict so that uh, we can get saved, so we can accept Christ as our Savior and be a true worshiper of you, Father. Father, I pray for other of us who maybe we have not uh, put attention to the salvation that has been given to us. I pray that we will look to change that. Father, other of us might be tired. We've been trying and struggling and, and failing and trying to get up again and failing. I pray that your spirit would encourage to keep on. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Um, praise the Lord, we have uh, Anna's son. Is it a son? Son, right? I think they decided to name him Daniel, right? No, not Daniel. Well, it was, it was a pretty second close one. And so we'll, um, we'll get to hear wonderful little baby sounds, and it'll keep everybody awake. Uh, so that it's not like a, a, a noisemaker that I've brought in. This is, we're rejoicing with this fact. Um, 
I'm pretty sure they wanted Daniel, but they, uh, they couldn't fit it on the birth certificate or something like that. Last week when we were looking at uh, Ephesians chapter 5, 1 through 2, uh, finished the sermon talking about missions and what is the motivating fact of missions. Now, uh, the motivating fact of missions is that there is a lack of worship, a lack of worship of God. If you consider Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you have uh, the creation and you have Adam and Eve and they're enjoying the fellowship of the Lord. Uh, chapter 3 changes that scenario in that um, they decide to sin against God and it, it, it sets forth this whole uh, aspect of God where he is redeeming mankind. And then if you jump all the way to Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, the scene is a new heaven and new earth and there is no need for missions at that time. There is eternal worship of the Lord, eternal fellowship and, uh, uh, of God. So it's that in between this stage of chapter 3 all the way to chapter 20 of Revelation that we have this aspect of missions, and the necessity for missions is that there is a lack of worship. Uh, one day missions will cease, worship will continue uh, forever. Now, missions exist because people are not worshiping the Lord. Uh, as we look at Matthew chapter 28, 19, and 20, uh, we're to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's identifying them with God and teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. The teaching to obey is discipling an individual so that they are to the point as, as Christ always obeyed the Father and that glorified the Father, so an individual is to live that way as well. What we have been seeing so far in Paul's presentation in chapter 4 in this application aspect of what he has presented of, of doctrine of chapters 1, 2, and 3 is that he has been focusing on this uh, verb to walk. And it has this idea of how one conducts themselves, how one lives their life, uh, how they behave, how they react to situations. Chapter 4 Verse 1, he talks about uh, how we are to walk in a manner uh, of the calling which you have been called. And, and he talks about this way that we're supposed to be walking in, in unity. And then he mentions in chapter 4, verse 17, that uh, we're not to walk any longer as Gentiles who walk in the futility of their mind. Uh, we should walk in holiness. And then in chapter 5, verse 2, Based on being an imitator of God, which is your essence of who you are, you are to, verse 2, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself uh, for us. So we've seen this, this aspect that Paul is using, this walking of conducting your life and how you conduct your life. And this last one that we saw is of love. Now, love looks for the best interest of the object loved. Love seeks the best interest of the object loved. Someone comes up to you and they say, they look at you in your eyes and maybe they're holding your hand and they say, I love you. And if you're a sensible person, you start to wonder, what, what, what does that mean exactly? Because I've heard some people say, I love salmon, right? And when they say, I love salmon, it doesn't mean that they have the best interest of the salmon 
right? They're thinking about how they're going to grill it or saute it with some lemon and, and some butter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Their love for it is really a selfish love. They, they like how it makes their taste buds react, right? They, they, they like the taste, the smell, and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They do not have the salmon's best interest. They have their own best interest. When we look at Christ's example of his love, love extends itself to a sacrifice of self for the best interest of the person. Uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He did not love and therefore uh, took advantage of, of people. That, that's not the case. His love required a sacrifice for the best interest of people. Christ loved, which is the first time that we see in this epistle, that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Christ's love led to a sacrifice on his part for the best interest of the recipients of love. Now, thinking about this, we're going to see that this aspect of love extends itself, but now in a negative fashion. Because what we're going to see is that there are individuals that rather than following the example of Christ, uh, have a self-love that gets demonstrated through the actions that are mentioned in verses 3 through 5. So what we're looking at today is that a true believer, and what am I talking about a true believer? A true believer is a person who has realized that they are a sinner and that there is nothing that they can do to get one step, one inch closer to God. They have put their faith in Christ's work on the cross where he died in their place. He, that person has accepted that sacrifice as a substitution to be able to buy them out of the slave market of sin to redeem them, to appease God's wrath so that they can be in a relationship with God. When I say a believer, I'm talking about that person who has had that transaction where their sins are no longer on them, but rather Christ's righteousness is on them. A true believer seeks holiness. So we'll be looking at a true believer will love God by being holy, thankful, in worshiping God through daily decisions. That's what we'll be looking at today. A true believer will love God by being holy, thankful, and worshiping God through our daily decisions. And our first point that we'll see in verse 3 is that a true believer seeks holiness. He starts off with a, uh, a contrast. So that it, it marks a difference that uh, verse 3 says, but immorality. It marks a contrast with which was previously stated that uh, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself uh, for us, an offering and sacrificing to God as a fragrant aroma, now a contrast happens with an activity and expression that does not fall in line with the previous mentioned love. But immorality, this word has, um, you could uh, also translate as fornication, it's any unlawful sexual um, activity, any unlawful sexual activity that a person can have. Any type, any type that you can imagine. Don't imagine, but if you could imagine, if you were going to imagine, it involves all aspects of improper sexual activity. I was told uh, a while back that I should, I should warn uh, if, if we're going to be talking about adult materials, they didn't tell me when I should warn, but 
it mentioned fornication here. So here's your warning <laughs> in case you need to know, have a warning. Um, don't any type of, any type, whether you're looking at it in magazines, where you're on websites, where you're watching on the TV, whatever it might be, this covers all aspects of any type of activity that is not sanctioned by the Lord. Uh, you can think about that in, in all its different forms. And it's, so it says, but immorality and any impurity. This word has the idea of vileness or trash, but it can be used in a figurative uh, way to talk about moral corruption. Moral corruption, where the person does not act according to how they should morally. It's like trash. It has no value other than to be thrown away. So it says uh, immorality or any impurity or greed. Greed here has this idea of desiring more than what you are due. You think you, you need more. You have been given, but you say, that's great, but I need more. Whatever that, that could be more. Uh, whether it be power, whether it be finances, whether it be homes, whatever it might be, you, know, you have something, but you desire more of it. You're not happy with what you have. Now, looking at these three activities, each of these activities demonstrate themselves differently. And it, it, we wouldn't want to do this, but if we were to open a door and look at the first one, immorality, we could spot it pretty quickly. Uh, you open up the door and, oh my word, we, we can tell that. We, we can see the first one, uh, fornication. We can see a type of uh, activities that, that should not be done, that are not sanctioned by the Lord. We, we could spot that on pretty quickly. The, the second one, the vileness. Uh, we, we probably could see that too, whether it be a, a way a person is speaking, the conversation that they're having, the activities, the things that they're watching. You say, that, that's really vile. That, that's really nasty. That, we could spot that on pretty quickly. Greediness is, is a little bit different. And the reason that greediness is a little bit different is that we can sometimes justify greediness. For example... Uh, I'm not greedy. I'm just trying to provide for my family. So we need to have 10 homes, you know. Uh, I'm not greedy. It's just I, I, I'm, I'm working to be able to, whatever, grow the company. I, I'm trying to build the church. I'm trying to, it, it's not that I'm greedy. I'm trying to properly steward what the Lord has given me. We, we can spiritualize it. Now, it, if we open the door and we see you being greedy, you could spiritualize it and we could never know the difference. But you know the motivation of your heart. And more importantly, God knows the motivation of your heart. Now, seeing this, it gives a contrast because it says uh, these things, immorality, which is fornication, Impurity, which is vileness, greediness is a desire to have more and more. It says, must not, must not even be named among you. That word uh, named uh, is a word that in the active sense has this uh, idea of uh, like you, you name a child, 
you, you name a, a, an animal or something, you give it a name. But in the passive sense, it has this idea of that it has a reputation. So Paul is saying, and of course here it appears in the passive, here the idea is that that church, First Baptist Church of Ephesus, should not have a reputation. People should not know about them that they are uh, involved in immorality, that they're involved in impurity, that they're greedy people. They've got uh, money in the bank, and uh, instead of using it to reach people in their neighborhoods and reach people in their state and reach people in their nation and help people out and, and reach among the nations, they decide to install a lazy river uh, in their property so that their members can just float around all day. They're, they're greedy. They just focus on themselves. We just need a little bit more. We've got good, comfortable chairs, but wouldn't it be nice if those chairs would recline? Wouldn't it be nice if we had some people with, you know, some drinks kind of going through, offering you a little something? You want some popcorn? Yeah, you're passing some. You want cheddar? Yeah. Right in the middle of the sermon? Wouldn't that be fantastic? Oh, that would be great. A church that just focuses on themselves. We need more. It says it shouldn't even be named. You should not, we should not have this reputation. It's unfortunate that some churches have a reputation as this. The reason that this should not have this reputation is as it is proper among saints. Uh, as it is proper among saints. That word for saints has the idea of being dedicated or consecrated to the service of God. It, it, the fact that there are saints, they are consecrated, they are dedicated to God. Now, how did that happen? At what point did these people become consecrated to the service of God? Well, from chapter 1, when he decided to uh, choose and predestine, when he sent his son to redeem, when he sent his spirit to seal, these individuals who have believed the truth of salvation, they, these things have happened to them. They're no longer themselves. They, they are now being set, they are set apart, consecrated to the Lord. And because of this, they are to live differently. Now, when we talk about holiness, I, I, I need to make this very, very clear that holiness is not legalism. Legalism is a system by which you try to gain God's favor. Legalism tries to dress a certain way, try to cut your hair a certain way, you try to uh, have uh, certain activities, uh, certain attendance, a certain et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that somehow is going to gain God's favor. But we can't gain God's favor. Look, look at the situation that we were in. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. I'm not going to read them, all the verses. It says, you were dead in your trespasses of sin, in, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust." of our uh, flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. What, what was our situation? We're dead. How do we gain God's favor? We can't. He's chosen to love us. He, he's chosen to bestow his grace upon us. We, we can't gain 
So why should we be holy if he's done this? It's a pursuit to acting like God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. We're called to be holy because God is holy. If you are a son, a daughter of God, as God is holy, we are set apart to act holy. It's not legalism to pursue. Now, we're not going to be perfect. Of course not. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, though, tells us the difference between a righteous man and an unrighteous man. A righteous man will fall down seven times, and what will he do? He'll stay in the mud, right? No. He gets up. He falls seven times, he gets up. The unrighteous, the wicked, what do they do? Well, I failed today. I'm probably going to fail tomorrow. I'll just stay in this mess. No, that's not what we're supposed to do. Holiness is not legalism. Holiness is contextually correct for the believer. Notice what it says there in in verse 3. It says, as is proper, as is fitting. Context determines what is appropriate behavior. A pig acts like a pig. And no one would ever think that a pig should act any other way, right? Even if you wash it up, you don't think that it's really just going to stay clean all day. No, it's going to go find the first uh, puddle and just jump in it, right? A child acts like a child. And any sensible person would not expect a child to act any different. A child is going to act like a child. Now, you might be thinking that I'm arguing for relativism. I'm not. Ephesians chapter 3, 6 through 12, Paul establishes that we're a new creature. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you are a new person, joined together to Christ as your head. That makes you to act different. There's no other option for you. That's who you are in your nature. Just like a pig will act like a pig and a child will act like a child, a new creature in Christ will act in holiness. There's no other option. There's nothing else that you can say, oh, I'd like plan B, please. No. It's a pursuit, as it says in chapter 5, verse 1, to be an imitator of God. Now, holiness is the goal of our life. We're to seek holiness. Now, you say, I've tried that. Last year I tried that for January. I made it to January 2nd, and I failed the rest of the year. You don't put your focus on yourself. You put your focus on God. Chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within within us. This God that we serve has much more power than what we can imagine. As we pursue holiness, we look to the Lord. Now, a true believer expresses thankfulness. A true believer seeks holiness. A true believer expresses thankfulness. And we see that in verse 4. In verse 4, we see, um, and there must be no filthiness in silly talk or coarse jesting. That that first word, uh, filthiness, is... um, shamefulness, a behavior that has no moral standards. It's obscene. That should not happen. And furthermore, it says, and silly talk, uh, the New American Standard translated as silly talk, 
It's a compound word where two words are brought together. One is, is the word where we would get our word for, for moron. Uh, the second word is uh, uh, for word. So it's a person who speaks foolishly. This word does not appear anywhere else in the New Testament. Uh, the word that is, um, would be silly or foolish, that appears 12 times in the New Testament. Uh, so how do you study a word that only appears one time? Well, you have to look at how other parts of that word might appear in other contexts. So to do that, we would look at the word that gets translated most of the time, foolish, and it appears 12 times in the New Testament. Six times it's mentioned by Jesus and six times by Paul. We're not going to look at each of those. But in Matthew chapter 7, verse uh, 26, uh, here Jesus is talking about that the person who hears his words and does them is a wise man. And that person is like a man who builds a house upon a rock. The person who hears his words and does not do them, keeps on doing whatever he wants to do, that person is a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And then the rain comes and it destroys it. It's mentioned again in Matthew chapter 25, verse 2, verse 3, and verse 8. Uh, there the context is, you remember that Jesus is giving a parable and he's talking about how uh, the, the kingdom and so forth, and there's these uh, virgins that are, wise, and then there's these virgins who are foolish. The wise virgins bring enough oil to wait up all night for the groomsmen. Whereas the foolish say, maybe he'll come within the time frame of the amount of oil that I have, because I don't feel like carrying more oil. And so they make no preparation at all, and then in the middle of the night comes the groomsmen, and they have no oil. In both cases, this idea of foolishness is an individual that knows what is right, but expects a different outcome by doing the opposite. Can you imagine how absurd that is? Expecting a different result when you know this is what is going to happen, but maybe it won't happen to me. Well, that's absurd. He says, this is uh, silly talk. Talking like that, thinking that there's going to be some other outcome. And then, of course, jesting. It has this uh, uh, idea of of saying things inappropriate and then being like, oh, I was just joking around. Risque wit. This is how this person is talking. Now, it gives these three actions and it says uh, it's not fitting, but rather giving thanks. Giving thanks. It, these things don't belong to a believer. It's not what is appropriate for them to be doing. But rather, what is appropriate is that this person is giving thanks. Now, this thankfulness is, is showing an appreciation, showing a gratitude. Uh, thinking about this thankfulness, your mouth is only going to express what your mind is thinking about. You think about communication. We have no way of directly transferring our thoughts into the thoughts of other people, right? We have to use a form of communication, whether it be art, uh, writing, uh, words, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we have no way of communicating unless, uh, you know, passing one's thoughts from one brain to another brain. We, we have to communicate. And what we communicate is what we think about, what we're processing. Proverbs chapter 23 
6 and 7, it, it warns about going to a selfish man because as a person thinks, that, that's how he is. And you don't want to go around. As a person is thinking, that's what they're going to be expressing. That's what they're going to be saying. Now, what a mind is thinking about is whatever's in their heart. Uh, we've been to this text before, but let's go to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, this is a great passage that kind of just hits at this point about whatever's in your heart is going to come out. I'm thinking about verse 43. Uh, Jesus is talking in parables, and he's using a parable about a tree. He says, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. The fruit is dependent upon the root. You can try all you want to try to knock off the bad fruit and put good fruit on there. But whatever is that root is what's going to produce. Many times, parents will want to address the fruit that their child is demonstrating and never regard the heart of that child. They won't. They'll never address what's going on in their heart. Who, who is it that they're worshiping at that moment of that sin? So what they'll do is they'll say, no, don't say that. Don't be like that. Share, blah, blah, blah. And they'll never go to the heart of that kid. Adults do this too. They, they try to act a certain way. They, they do. They'll try to act and they think, if I can limit my time around saved people, then they'll think that I'm saved. Right? You know, I don't want to be around saved people too long because then the, I, I can't hold up the facade long enough. Well, what does it keep on saying? Verse 44, For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from what which it fills his heart. So you'll be thinking about whatever's in your heart. You're going to say whatever's in your mind, and your mind is going to be fed by whatever your heart. You can try all you want to try to change the behavior, but unless you change that heart, there will be no change. There will be no true change. It, this goes back to that verse uh, 1 of chapter 5 of being an imitator. It goes down to your essence of who you are as a person. Now, looking at this, we see our last verse, which is verse uh, 5. A true believer chooses to worship God. Now, this is a very tricky verse. It's a tricky verse because this verse doesn't tend to get preached very often. If it does get preached, it dies the death of a thousand qualifications. It's like, well, Paul, Paul really doesn't mean what he's saying here. Uh, he, he's not really saying that you're not saved. And, and then they'll say, well, there's, you know, there was the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross, you know, he, he didn't exhibit any change in his life. And, and, and the Lord said to him, today you'll be in paradise. I wouldn't use the thief on the cross as your example for Christian living, primarily because Christ is our example for Christian living, not the thief on the cross. He's not our example for how we should live. Here Paul is writing, 
and he writes a very strong verse, and he doesn't soften it. He doesn't try to qualify it. He doesn't kill it with a thousand uh, qualifiers. Well, except in this and this and this and this and this situation, this is true. So I have no intention to softening verse 5. Um, Larry's not here. Maybe Larry would soften it. Venkat's not here either. Maybe Venkat would soften it for you. I have no intentions of softening this verse. Verse 5. For this you know with certainty. The way that the New American Standard has tried to uh, express the idea that is here is that Paul gives two different verbs that have the idea of knowing and puts them side by side. The first word for knowing is a, is a perfect, and the perfect is something that has happened and it continues to have an impact in the future. You know something and it changes your behavior for how you act in the future. And it's an imperative, which is a command. You know this. Now, the, the certainty part is translating a participle, which also has this idea of knowing. And it's a present participle, which has this idea of a continuing knowing. You keep on knowing. So it's a, as they've tried to translate here, is to knowing with certainty, right? Uh, for this you know with certainty. You, this is not something that is argued about. This is not something that's debated. This is an axiom by which you develop other, uh, other thoughts. But this is not something that you can debate. Now, what is this? That no immoral, that's our word for fornication. It's that word of somebody who practices sexual immorality uh, it, it is involved in improper things that the Lord has not sanctioned. Uh, immoral or impure. This is something unclean, something unclean that is not fit to be in contact with divinity. It is dirty. You don't. You wouldn't bring it to the Lord and say, "Here, touch this." No. So know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man. It's that greedy. It's the one who desires to have more than what is due to him. He wants more and more and more. And it says, who is an idolater? Now, this uh, idea of idolater, some have uh, tried to understand it as being applicable to the covetous person alone. Uh, the who, though, is a neuter, and it does not reflect any of the previous sins uh, as, as how they are uh, declined. So the idea there is that it applies to all these sins. All these sins are categorized as an idolater. Uh, you say, well, that, that seems like a, a weird way of expressing. It, it happened in chapter 2, verse 8, when it talks about um, it is a gift of God, that it is does not reflect uh, the grace or the faith, but rather the saving process that God has saved uh, so here he's using this form again, where he's using a neuter to uh, communicate the idea of all these sins. All these sins are a reflection of idolatry. Now, uh, thinking about this, this person is an idolater. Uh, who has, in, uh, it says, uh, who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Uh, this, no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater 
has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. They have no inheritance. They don't have a place. They don't have a spot. Nothing is reserved for them there. Nothing. Now, thinking about this uh, kingdom of Christ and God, this is the only occurrence of kingdom in the book of Ephesians, in this letter of Ephesians. So what what could it mean? Uh, Well, we see that Christ has been put above all principalities and powers over there in verse 21. So Christ in his headship has the body, which is the church, put in there. A person who has no inheritance is not part of this. They're separate. Therefore, they're not going to have eternal life. Now, thinking about this, worship is at the heart of the problem. That, that idolater is a person who is worshiping. Having the option to either worship the Lord or worship something else, they've chosen to worship something else. Now, what are they worshiping? Well, if you look at the list of sins here, basically the individual has exalted themselves. Their pride has said, I deserve this pleasure. God has said not to do this. I deserve this pleasure. I deserve to speak in this fashion. I deserve to act in this way, to say these types of jokes. I deserve this. Basically, it comes down to either the person is going to worship the Lord or worship themselves. It comes down to the heart of who a person is going to worship. Worship is at the heart of the problem. Are they going to worship the Lord or are they going to worship self? And a person that worships self has no spot in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's just, there's no place for them there. Missions exist because there is a lack of worship of God. How, how will they believe unless someone tells them? They need somebody to tell them so that they can put their faith. And that does a transformation in their life so that they worship God instead of self. At the heart of this is who are you going to worship? And a person that worships self has no place in the kingdom of Christ. There's no other way of interpreting this. There's no way of softening this. A person who does not worship Christ will not have a place with him. Now thinking about this, a true believer, a true believer will love God by being holy, by being thankful, and by worshiping God through your daily decisions. And you'll see that because a true believer will seek holiness, a true believer will express thankfulness, and a true believer will choose to worship God. It might be that you're not a true believer. You have some information, maybe you've attended church, maybe... We're at the second Sunday. You've attended church all year, right? Woo! But you're not a worshiper of God. You're still exalting yourself. You still think that you deserve certain pleasures even though the Lord has said no. You don't deserve those pleasures. You still think that you have these certain rights and God says no. You're supposed to be holy and consecrated to me. He says there's no place for that person. But there is an invitation because a a price has been paid that will cover for you to have salvation. 
if you believe. And that is a matter of, of humbling yourself, understanding you are a sinner and that your sin separates you from the Lord. Maybe you're saved here, but you haven't been practicing this. You haven't been demonstrating the love of Christ by walking in, in love. Rather, you have been engaging in other things by exalting yourself. You've wanted things your way. You haven't been doing any of these things. You haven't been thankful. You haven't been holy. And you haven't been worshiping the Lord. Today, you can seek repentance. And we're about to have an invitation. Kirithi's going to come up. And I would encourage you to meditate on that as we have this word of prayer. Let's stand. Father, I pray now as we consider our lives, there might be some that are here that are unsaved. They don't worship. They don't worship you, Father. I pray that the Spirit would convict them and that they would see their need of a Savior. Father, I pray for other of us here that maybe we haven't been walking in holiness or in thankfulness. Father, we haven't been walking in worship because we haven't been loving. I pray that you would forgive us and strengthen us to live accordingly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.